Welcome to Intersections, a podcast dedicated to interfaith discussion on issues that matter to our communities and our world. I'm the Reverend Chris Moore. I serve at Fellowship Congregational United Church of Christ here in Tulsa and also as board chair for Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry. Thanks for listening. Just two days ago, a bill passed out of the Oklahoma Senate that would prohibit gender-affirming care to minors who are transgender. This bill mirrors, as bills often do, the kind of legislation being passed in many states with a majority control by a single party. Such gender-affirming care is endorsed by virtually every major medical organization, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, and is viewed as not only appropriate, but indeed life-saving, as the statistics bear out a much more likely chance of clinical depression and attempts at suicide amongst teens denied access to this documented treatment for gender dysphoria. Despite the reality that people feel differently about the overall reality of transgender persons, there is simply no medical justification for such an outright ban. The comments given in the process of passing the bill through the Senate display an ignorance of the extensive process one goes through with gender-affirming care and seems to fly against the parental rights argument that is displayed in so many other political debates. But when the legislators say on the floor of the Senate things like, there is no spectrum of choice, you are a boy or a girl, or that you cannot cure confusion with a knife, the assumptions, the narrative that is driving this effort is revealed. My guests today have input from many directions to offer on this, and I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves, starting first with Aiden. Chris, thank you so much for the opportunity to chat with you a little bit about this. My name is Aiden Wadener-Smith. I was born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I've grown up here as an, an, an Okie, and my wife and I continue to make this state our home. Um, we, you know, we live here in Tulsa and, and both work in a, in a corporate setting and, and, and management for a Fortune 500 company. And uh, we care very deeply about this issue and um, welcome the opportunity to, to educate and, and talk about it wherever we can. So thank you for the, the invitation. And Josh. Yeah, my name is Josh Payton. I'm a, an attorney in Tulsa. We uh, started out as a name and gender marker clinic out of the Oklahomans for Equality Center. And this past summer, uh, we uh, officially started the Oklahoma Equality Law Center. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization to serve the legal needs of the two-spirit LGBTQ plus uh, community in Oklahoma with uh, a focus of, through the law, trying to change the hearts and minds of Oklahomans to have the conversations that we need with judges, with other attorneys and folks to try to destigmatize some of the issues around transgender, uh, legal issues, um, and the LGBTQ plus community. Um, I am also very grateful to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to, to come and talk to you today. I do want to be clear as we enter this discussion um, that this will be far from comprehensive on what is a complicated issue. So I encourage you to consider many sources out there to educate yourself on trans issues specifically beyond what we'll offer today. And there will be resources listed in the description for this episode. If you are a member of the Q Plus community, I hope that you will find some helpful resources. And if you're working to be an ally, there's some stuff for you too. Josh and Aiden, welcome to Intersections. 
Josh, would you begin uh, by telling us a little bit about how you came to do this specific kind of legal work? Uh, yeah, it would be my pleasure. Um, and Chris, you play a role in that. Uh, I sought your counsel a long time ago about how to get involved um, in this issue. And it's been an issue that uh, really has been a part of my life. Um, you know, I grew up, my parents telling me that being homosexual was a mental illness. And the Southern Baptist Church, you know, where it's all bad, right? Um, and then I had a lesbian sister. And then I fell in love with, you know, my sister-in-law uh, through that marriage. And now I have a transgender sibling. Um, and I've been faced with these issues and struggled through them. Um, and then the, the recent history of it is having the skills, uh, being an attorney, and trying to figure out a way to get involved. Like, what, what do you do uh, in Oklahoma as an ally, straight, cisgender, white male, all the privileges that you can have. Um, and what came from that at our church at Boston Avenue with the support of the pastor, uh, and, and you were a part of this, was the family conversations, where at first I saw my family struggling so much with the, the transgender issue in terms of my sibling coming out. Um, and we handled it horribly as a family. Um, and so at first it was a, a place, can we have some conversations in a church? It's the symbolic nature of being inside that building and having the conversations. And we would be three or four people, and we just sought to educate ourselves and have conversations with no real agenda other than helping each other. Uh, one of the people in that group uh, was Renee. She had a a kid that was six or seven, I believe, when they came out as transgender. Uh, and I watched that family go through the name change process. And Renee was, was an attorney, and she struggled with that on how to talk to a judge about it, uh, how to talk about it with her husband. You know, just the whole thing, you know, uh, was too difficult in my, in my opinion. So I sought out your counsel. I sought out uh, Toby Jenkins, and I was like, hey, I want to get involved. I will clean toilets. Um, and that was really because of my wife. My, my wife got sick of hearing me complain. You know, it's so easy to just shake your fist at the clouds and, and say, you know. And so she basically told me to shut up and go do something. And so that was me trying to figure out what to do. And that led to the name and, chain, uh, the name and gender marker correction clinic that we started uh, um, we, we did our first one December of 2020. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and in fact, messed it up so badly, we had to go back to my client's house and reprint the forms and do all that kind of stuff. I mean, I had never, I was a real estate attorney before. I had no idea what I was doing. The only thing I had with me was the willingness to fail um, and faith that there would be people there to pick me up when I was failing. And can I ask you, Josh, it's probably pretty fair to say that it's not a well-worn path in the state of Oklahoma either. It's not like there's a whole, like, oh, well, here's the 10 steps that you do. No, it's not. And in fact, they make it uh, very difficult. There is uh, someone I have to say, Alyssa Bryant, um, a hero of mine, who really was the first person to get out there and try to do this with, missed, with mixed success. And I think probably because of... Um, discrimination, you know, discrimination against them and just made it more difficult. I can't talk about their journey, but that just as a outside perspective, but 
believe me, I printed out every possible decision that she had worked on and came up with the forms. And I, I had no idea what I was doing and the judges didn't know what we were doing. And I would go to the clerk's office, the Tulsa clerk's office here, the Tulsa County clerk's office. They would see me coming and they would literally scurry away because they didn't know how to answer my questions. Um, and that's just systemic discrimination, um, you know, and we go now and the clerks say us, hey, hey, Josh, or my wife, hey, Jen, you know, they, they know what we've done. And, and the one path that we really pushed on that was to waive the publication requirements. You know, um, recently there was a judge in Tulsa County who said, well, you know, I may be a bad person, but I want whoever's doing this for the gender marker change that they need to stand up in the courtroom and everyone needs to see them for what they're doing. And I'm like, great. So you have to out yourself to be able to, to, to get this remedy. Um, so we try to minimize those opportunities by getting the publication waived. And it took us a good four or five months to get them on board with that. But kind of fast forwarding to now, we've done over 100. I think we're at 106 over two years. Um, to put that in perspective, the year before I started, the state had done 20, the entire state. Um, and when we started, we could do birth certificates, but they saw us having success there. The governor did an executive order. They passed a statute. You know, now we're stuck in federal litigation where, you know, one of my clients is uh, the plaintiff in federal uh, district court to try to get that overturned. But even then, you know, we march on and, and we can't get the birth certificate, but we can get the name change. We can do a real ID. We can help them with their social security, uh, getting that changed and then get a passport. And for 99% of the things in your life, you can have the dignity and respect that you deserve by being called your name, being recognized as your gender. Um, and I, I tend to get emotional on these kind of things because I see the transformation literally in front of my eyes. They come in one and they leave themselves. And, and they're beautiful people. They're PhD candidates. They're mathematicians. They're some of the smartest people I know. They're also homeless. They're also mentally ill. Um, very rarely do they have family support. When they have someone with them next to them in the courtroom, I always make eye contact with that person and say, thank you for being here. Um, these are some of the most needy, beautiful, wonderful people in the entire world. And... Um, my journey on that has come full circle from someone who would openly use words that are unacceptable, bigoted, hateful, to I can't imagine my life now without transgender folks, without the LGBTQ plus two-spirit community in my lives. You know, the, the times that I feel most loved are when I'm around those people. It's just an authentic, pure, and I look at my faults and, and they look right around them. They see through them. And so I don't know if that's, you know, what in terms of my journey, I probably got a little too serious there, but I have struggled to become an ally. And the reason why I want to be here and talk is because I want to help one person out there to stand up and be, and, you know, let's follow me. Let's go, you know, let's, let's figure this out together. Cause that's what it takes. That's right. And, and just in that little, uh, you know, first of all, thank you for sharing that. And, and also it's, um, you can see in that uh, the, the subtext of, of what you were talking about, about how complex 
it the systems are that are in place that you have to navigate and and how uh, gender uh, seeps into everything you know that we do from uh, certainly from a legal structure and when you think about um, just just staying on the binary just switching from from one slot to the other slot uh, is is challenging enough and and if you were even to try to step outside of that there's very little room um, you know so we see how this is pretty systemically you know attached and, to us and what I'll say to that adding to that point is I have a JD. I finished in the top 10 of my law school class. Everything in my life I've ever wanted to do because of my privilege, I, I've done. And figuring out how to do a, na- do a name and gender marker change for the first time was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. My wife has a master's in public administration. She's one of the smartest people I know. I mean, you know her. We routinely look at each other and go, how, what are we going to do? Because, and then you're expecting some of the most discriminated against people in the, in the, in the, in the country to figure that out. And, um, it just goes to the level of the systemic nature of, of the, uh, efforts to essentially try to erase these people. So, um, you know, that brings us back to, uh, uh, a place in which we, we can see that there are efforts at the state legislature right now in this session, as there were in the last session, um, to, to impact um, uh, this community uh, that gets uh, hit on from lots of different directions. Uh, but the, I hope we can appreciate as we see whatever it is that comes out of this session, which will not be positive for, the, for this community, um, that there are already, it is adding to what it already exists in terms of complications and um, the process that uh, that is in place. And the narrative that is out there is one that um, uh, really has very little to do with actual reality. So the, the amount of sort of ignorance on the issue um, is pretty widespread. Uh, and people make a lot of assumptions about things and people... Um, uh, one of the dominant narratives that's out there right now that we've that we're hearing about is that um, gender affirming care is something that is uh, easily achievable. It's accessible every, anywhere you want to go, and it is um, you know broken down to something as um, uh, ridiculous as a teenage person can just walk into their doctor's office and see a doctor and have surgery the next day. Um, that, that that's the process that's in place. That's not the case. And so, um, Aiden, I wondered if you would tell us a little bit about your journey. Well, um, so I, in my introduction, I talked about growing up in the, the state of Oklahoma. And I think by the, by the um, pitch of my voice, it sounds, sounds pretty deep. You would probably expect to see a, um, if, if you could, see us, you would expect to see a dude sitting in front of you. Um, and yeah, you, 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 if, if you saw me, you'd see a, a, a roly poly bearded balding guy. <laughs> um, not that there's anything wrong not that, with right. that. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> but, uh, um, when I, when I say I grew up in, in Oklahoma, in Tulsa, I, I was raised as a girl here and, um, uh, 
knew, though, that that was not entirely true for for me, but did not really have words for that as I I, I grew up in Tulsa. Um, I was, uh, you know, the oldest of four kids raised um, by a, um, a, my my mom's a nurse, my dad's a fireman, were um, in a lot of ways kind of what, you know, to to put it in in air quotes, that that proverbial all-American kind of, you know, middle-class you know, in the heart of the country type of family, you know, that, that you see in stories type of experience and grew up, um, in a United Methodist church. Um, and I still knew that, you know, as, as I was being raised as a girl, that, that wasn't true for me. And I, um, but I didn't have words for it because, you know, so in the, in the time kind of growing up in the late eighties, early nineties, there there wasn't a whole lot of language and, you know, which is part of, you know, the, 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 the challenge is, you know, finding, finding words is your, um, especially if you're a, a marginalized community, finding words that, that define who you are. Um, and, you know, so what I did know was that I could talk about who I was attracted to and I knew that I was attracted to girls. Um, and, but I also knew that that did not align with my religious upbringing. And so, um, my first kind of foray into some of the challenges that LGBTQ folks encounter in, um, uh, places like Oklahoma was around that, uh, particular issue was around, um, the issue of homosexuality and, uh, and, you know, and, and whether or not it's, it's a sin and, and, um, what is, um, uh, an acceptable, um, sexual orientation. And so, um, you know, so I, I, you know, went through that experience with my family, but all the while knowing that there was more to my identity than that. And um, when I uh, went to college, um, again, in Tulsa, I, I went to the University of Tulsa, uh, you know, um, uh, here uh, through, through my whole life. And um, when, when, I, when I went there, I, I had the opportunity to encounter some, some folks that, um, uh, through through a conference that uh, I was invited to attend, I, I I wish I knew who had actually invited me to attend this conference. It was a um, it was it was held at a, a church locally, All Souls Unitarian Church, and it was a conference, a gathering of of transgender in, individuals. And um, somehow I I was uh, I received an invitation to go. So I almost feel like there was some some angel out there looking, you know, um, looking looking out there for me. And um, and when I when I attended this conference. It was it was amazing. All of a sudden, I saw people who um, who had words for how I identified, um, who uh, um, and and who you know had some understanding of of what it was going to take to be able to live a a happy, healthy, fulfilling life. And um, and so I, it's like I had found an oasis in a desert. And so at that time, I. Um, uh, started going through the, the, the process, so to speak about, you know, what it takes to, to transition from, um, one gender to the other. And, um, I, uh, um, I, I, I remember telling my parents and that was, was not necessarily the most, most pleasant conversation. I, I told them I was going to wait until after I graduated from college and I did. Um, and so I began the process to, to transition in 2007, which, 
you know, for, for me, um, uh, that, that began with, um, seeing a, a therapist, a, 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 a local psychologist and, and, and she, um, and I, you know, over the course of a, a few sessions, she, um, affirmed that, yes, I, um, uh, did meet the, the required medical criteria to, to medically transition. And she wrote me a letter, um, which is the first hurdle that you have to uh, undergo the, uh, you have to receive approval from a medical professional to undergo, um, a medically supervised transition. And, uh, from there I, uh, um, then had to find a doctor and, um, was able to find a, a doctor who would, would treat me. And I had to provide that letter and all of the while, this is taking, um, you know, months and months. You have, it's, it's a very lengthy process. And, um, and so going to see that doctor, uh, um, uh, they administered um, uh, hormone therapy to me through uh, that, that doctor prescribed hormone therapy for me. And, um, and at that point, I, I began to actually um, experience physical changes um, after undertaking that hormone therapy. And, um, and hormone therapy is not cheap. And um, a lot of uh, insurance companies do, uh, most insurance companies don't cover it. Um, um, and so it's, you know, those, these are all expenses that, that, you know, a person is paying for out of pocket. Um, and, uh, you know, so at that point, um, my body begins to physically change. My, my voice deepens. I start to grow um, facial hair, you know, all like, with a lot of pubescent boys that, you know, starts off very kind of peach fuzz oriented and it, you know, <laughs> takes a little bit of time before you're actually, you know, you've got your Paul Bunyan beard or whatever. I, um, uh, you know, so at, at that point, um, uh, after, after a period of, oh, it was about a, about a year or so, it, it became very apparent that I, I, um, was, um, causing, um, uh, whenever I would be out in public and I would use a public restroom, if I continued to use the women's restroom, it would cause concern. And, and so at that point I needed to get, um, uh, some, some medical or, or some, some documentation changed. I had to go through the process to get my, my name changed. And, uh, there, there wasn't a whole lot of guidance kind of had to, uh, do that, um, uh, in, uh, uh, a, a desert. I, I didn't have a, a resource of a, of an attorney, um, had to kind of figure it out. Um, uh, I, I will say though, the, the community of transgender people in, Oklahoma, you know, in, in Tulsa, we are, um, uh, you know, a, a smaller, but, but mighty group and really do a lot to try to take care of each other. And, um, and so all of the, uh, you know, um, uh, guidance that I received came from those individuals. And, um, and so, um, my, my ability to figure it out was really, um, uh, you know, relying on, on, um, other folks who had asked the hard questions and kind of figured it out. And, um, uh, and, and, you know, but again, it's, it's not an easy process to navigate. You have to go before a judge and, um, and, and, you know, at that point I'm, I'm doing that by myself. Yeah. So, and I'm also hearing dollar signs and right. It's being written and right. none of this is free. None of it's right. free. Yeah. It's out of pocket. And, um, and so, and, and then you, you know, for me, um, I, uh, knew that, that surgery was going to need to be something that I, um, under, undertook. And, and that's not necessarily the case for every transgender person. Um, I have to say, you know, for me, um, I am in, incredibly privileged. I, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a white guy. I, uh, you know, grew up with a, a, a family that, you know, provided a lot of 
of stability and prioritized a lot of the things that are um, wealth building types of things like education. And um, and so because because of the education that I have, I, I was able to afford the surgical costs that are all out of pocket for, or they were all out of pocket for me. Um, and, uh, um, and so I, I, um, at that point had what we refer to as a chest surgery. It's a, it was a mastectomy. Um, and whenever I, um, uh, completed that, that step, I was able to get, um, a letter from my surgeon that said that I had, um, uh, completed an irreversible gender changing, um, surgical procedure and um, was able to work through the um, Social Security Administration and, and, and get a passport and a driver's license that reflect um, my gender identity as male. Um, I have not been able to successfully change my birth certificate in the, the state of Oklahoma, so that is still something that um, uh, I, I uh, carry around as a, a kind of a, a vestige of my journey um, to, to get here. Um, but uh, um, I'm hopeful that at one point I'll, I'll be able to change that documentation as well. Does that, does that cause you issues at any time? At, at, at this point, it really hasn't. Um, and I think that's largely because um, uh, you know, federally, I'm, you know, when you have a passport and some of the, you know, you social security and some of those documents, documents yeah, right. th- those documents really kind of can, can trump a lot of the stuff that you, you have here and, um, at, at the state level. But, um, it would, it would be nice to not have to worry about whether, you know, is that going to show up at some point and bite me? I don't know. I'm going to interject because I want to, you know, you talked about your irreversible procedure too quote unquote, complete your transition, which that used to be the rules. And one of the biggest confusions out there is going to take an opportunity to say is that you don't need to have that surgery today to get the real ID changed. Um, The standard is uh, a notarized letter from a mental health professional. So somehow in 2019, there was a literal angel that got it into the regulations in Oklahoma that allowed that, you know, and I don't like to broadcast that too much. So don't tell (laughs) <laughs> the people don't need to know this, but if you are transgender and you want to do a gender marker correction, you do not need to have surgery. Um, and like Aiden, what you said too, I have a lot of clients who don't get surgery, who don't want surgery, who aren't looking for surgery. And so I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions that you see on the Senate bill and some of the language that's being used by Republicans and the you know conservatives that are moving for this is that people are running to get under the scalpel, under the knife, you know, that kind of stuff. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. Yeah. Not uh, only is it cost prohibitive, but they may also have many, many other reasons why right. that is not what they're seeking. Yeah. And, and anything other than the, the mastectomy too, I don't know if you'll be able to get that done in Oklahoma. Um, so, you know, I mean, there's just so many barriers to the final completing your transition, which we could have a whole podcast on what that means. Right. right. Josh, to your point about completing the procedures in in the state of of Oklahoma, there are very few surgeons who who offer some of of you know these types of procedures, and 
at least for me, whenever I, I had my, my surgical procedure, I did it out of state. I, I, I traveled to, um, Ohio and, and, and did it in Ohio because, um, you know, knowing that I'm, I'm in a lot of ways kind of putting my life in the hands of uh, another human. Um, I want, I want to trust that, that they're going to take care of me. And there are a lot of horror stories as well, where transgender people have had medical professionals not treat them uh, appropriately, take their money, um, you know, complete a procedure, but not really give them the care and, and they, they bear the scars of that. And so, um, you know, for me, it was really important that I um, use a medical professional that um, a, a surgeon that um, uh, I, I felt like I could trust and who I, um, you know, was, was able to, to, you know, see results from, from others and, and kind of hear testimonials of, of their treatment. And, 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 you know, I, I don't know very many individuals that actually, um, use surgeons in the, in the state of Oklahoma. That's not to say that there's probably not somebody out there who would be absolutely amazing. If you are, we, you know, we're, again, we're a small and mighty group and we love to give referrals. So, um, but, uh, um, you know, at, at least for me at the time, um, that wasn't something I, I was able to do, which again, just further adds to the, the cost, um, because you're having to travel, you're having to spend however many weeks away, you know, weeks away from work. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a lot that goes into that. Yeah. I mean, you're going to get an apartment. You're going to have to have someone come and take care of you. Um, it is a it's significant, a yeah, right. you're talking tens of thousands of dollars. Right. You're talking about the ability to get off work for weeks, months, Right. Uh, and then you're going to have to have the support, which this community doesn't always have people who are willing to come That's and right. change bandages and make and, sure you're and, taken care of. And, and the complexities of that really help, um, you know, push the question that is always in the back of my mind when, whenever you're dealing with, whether it's this issue or lots of other issues that we take legislative action on, um, if you pass this particular legislation banning that kind of gender affirming care. If you pass additional legislation, if you change this thing, if you change that thing and put up all of these barriers in place, the reality is there are still transgender persons. Right. So you don't get rid of that. No. And um, so the, but the underlying assumption, I think from a lot of legislature that you can hear as the subtext of their, of their talk is boils down to what Josh, you and I were talking about before we even started the podcast, which is, is there such a thing as a transgender person? Do, is that a thing or is it not a thing? And if you don't think it's a thing, then you're going to put all of these things in place. Um, and, you know, I'm just here to say, if you think it's not a thing, you're wrong. Yeah. I mean, you're wrong. trying to prevent an outcome that you can see, right? Correct. I'm going to measure this because there's people going under the knife and they're taking HRT and they're growing a beard or, you know, what. But I think what's missed on that is the humanity of the, of the person. You're talking about someone who likely knew. I mean, For this is medically time. from when the time they're four to 12 is usually when that happens. You're talking about telling your parents. Right. Which might be a good thing, might not be a good thing. I mean, when I or when, might be somewhere in between. <laughs> I mean, when my sibling told me, I grieved for a sure. year. Sure. I mean, you, it, uh, the courage to tell your parents, and then if you have family members that don't support you, you're ostracized. So you're talking about someone who has had the courage to tell their parents, likely knowing they're going to be kicked out, and then they're going to rush into a community where they're going to be underemployed, 
have less opportunities to get an education, have less opportunities to get access to health care, who are statistically going to be ver- verbally assaulted, maybe physically assaulted, who are... Um, much higher rates of depression, much higher Yeah, the depression, suicide the suicide rates. rates, you know, there are some studies saying up to 40% attempt. That's not ideation. That's not, you know, attempt. Um, and they're doing that because they want to rush to a surgery, you know? And so the outcome here quickly falls logically. And, and what you, what you see is a, a turn to the political game of the outcome. Um, but when you focus on the humanity of this and the person, um, you know, my clients, and this is heavy stuff. Maybe I shouldn't, you know, just spend all the time on that, but they've been thrown down flights of stairs. Their dad stalked them. You know, they, 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 it, it is some of the worst discrimination that, that, that someone can have. And so that's what makes this especially difficult for someone who loves these people, you know, or you're around them is that we are powerless a little bit right now to change the dialogue at, at the state level. Um, and I think I like regrettably, I wish there was a way for me to show the humanity, um, you know, and, and Aiden, he's like your journey and you just talking about it. I mean, to me, it's beautiful because I have, you know, I have over a hundred friends who've gone, you know, through some of that and to see, you know, the, the courage it takes to live authentically, to be you. Um, yeah. And, but that's, that's what we're here for. Right. Right. It's, is that authenticity. Well, and Josh, when you talk about the humanity piece of it, the, one of the things that I think is also just, um, you know, that, that that's really hard about some of this legislation is, is the, um, the, the components that impact the, um, medical professionals, the, you know, revoking licensure, um, for individuals that, that, that treat, um, you know, transgender folks like me, um, uh, you know, so what, what in essence you're doing is, is not only are you, you taking this, this life-saving treatment away from transgender people, but you're also creating this divisiveness between them and, and the folks who have been their caretakers and, and, and friends have been this lifeline for them. And, you know, and so, uh, you know, that, that there, there's, a, there's a human element there as, as well that, I mean, it's, it's, it's divisive. It's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, if I can separate, I can conquer and um, we're, we're going to make it so that, you know, we take, take, take their friends away <laughs> in essence. And I, um, you know, I, I, I had a, um, a conversation with a, a, um, a doctor here. I mean, it was maybe about three weeks ago or so, um, um, about being able to provide treatment to me. And, and he said, you know, I, I, I think I can, here's the deal. I'm watching what's going on with, with these laws and, you know, you're this age, so you're above the limit that, that, you know, where they would exclude it. However, I have to pay attention to that. And, you know, if they change whatever in the law, I will not be able to do this for you. And uh, I mean, you know, those, those conversations are hard and, and, um, and painful on both sides. I mean, I, and I was a part of one of those for one of my clients who's a minor, uh, this last special session where they unconstitutionally changed the funding to prevent, you know, the transgender care for minors at the OU, you know, hospital buildings. And that is one of the most difficult 
conversations. I've ever, I didn't say a word. I was just there as, as the attorney supporter, but to hear a doctor wanting to give the care to the, to, to the patient had years relationship with him and to tell the mom and the kid, you need to make other arrangements. It's, and, and to do all of that with no medical justification for that whatsoever. There's no scientific justification for it whatsoever. Uh, it is, it is all about a different agenda. Uh, we could speculate on where that agenda comes from, whether that's a political or religious agenda. Um, you know, there's certainly a lot of evidence for, for both of those things. Um, and that becomes, you know, that becomes really pro- like, if, is this the kind of atmosphere that we are really seeking to empower in which, uh, you know, one particular strand of, uh, you know, religious expression gets to decide what that is for, for everyone else. And not only that, but to take out medically approved procedures off the table because of that. So, I mean, there are, there are religious groups, well-documented, well-established religious groups in the state of Oklahoma who believe that blood transfusions are immoral. Are we, if they were in power and can they take those off the table? I mean, that's a wild speculation. I mean, it's way, but it, it is along the same sort of lines of if you have nothing else but the religious component to say, this is why you're doing something. How can, how can that be an acceptable tool for public policy? Right. And, and to what I think of is my sister-in-law, you know, my sister's lesbian. She married a woman that I fell in love with and she had, she got cancer, you know, and she passed away when she was 37. And I remember my family down at the Mayo Clinic, no, MD Anderson down in Texas. Is that what it is? Yeah. Um, we had to come up with $70,000 for the, you know, surgery that may give her a year. And, and the, the links that we were willing to go as a family to make that happen. And we did make it happen. You know, the desperation, the begging people for money, you know, when, when, when it's your kid, when it's your family member and, and it's, I want six more months, you're, you're willing to do anything. Um, to take that oper- that opportunity away from parents, it, I can't think of a more painful situation than, because that's the thing that uh, I want to say as a straight ally is I have seen that this is life and death. I recently learned of a client under the age of 20 who passed away. I don't know the exact reasons, but it doesn't take much to speculate with a supportive parent in the community, loved. And and you're saying that that person can have access to the thing right. that could give them the chance sure. to be authentically them. Not to mention the complexity, Josh, of, uh, of parents um, who want to be supportive and really don't know anything about anything. And they don't know how to navigate things. They don't know what's involved. They're troubled by the... the uh, Herculean effort that's going to be re- required and, and very little support. Um, 
Well, and bills like this create so much confusion as well. And so, you know, as a parent, you know, I, I, I am not a parent, but I can only imagine that as a parent, you know, Chris, when you talk about the level of confusion with, with something like this and trying to figure out what are, what are my options and, and then you, you in essence throw this, this element of, of chaos, uh, you know, and, and, you know, are, are folks going to be able to get, you know, guidance for, for what their options are, you know, or is it more what their options were and, and, and then how disheartening that can feel. Um, you know, I mean, to just, I mean, Josh, you know, to, to, to the, to our, con- the, the, your point, if, if you're a parent, you want to be able to avail yourself of whatever treatment is available for your child. Um, that would be life-saving in, in any way you can. And, and so to take some of those options off the table, um, I, 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 you know, I'm just, it's, it's incredibly painful. Well, I mean, I've been part of those conversations already. The, the minor clients that I, the parents of the minor clients I have, I've had more than five, less than 10 conversations with parents. Do I need to leave Oklahoma? And they're, they're just looking at you wanting some assurances that it's going to be okay. And the most difficult conversation in that moment is I don't know. And, and so, you know, there are some politicians, there's a Senator from Missouri who said, that's the point. We want these, you know, states more red, they'll all leave and then we'll be able to do whatever we want. And maybe that's the agenda here. I don't know. That's speculation, but the reality, the truth is that there are people now lifelong born in Oklahoma who are the most sooner loving people in this state who are now literally being forced right. to make that decision. And it, and you're right. It may be speculation that that's the agenda, but it sure feels like that's the agenda, especially to lots of folks who, who are uh, like me, who uh, are, are just um, sympathetic to at a high degree. Uh, um, and also people who are directly impacted by that. And, you know, my, my kids away to college, uh, right now, both of them and, you know, their mother and I have had the conversation with them. You know, this is not, this particular law is not a law that will impact them. Um, most likely, uh, however, like we're, that we know that this is may, this is starting to be the kind of atmosphere that they don't want to live in. And, uh, it becomes harder and harder to, um, have people suggest to people that they stick it out or that they, you know, yeah. sort of fight the good fight. Um, one of the conversations I, I talk over people, I'm sorry. But one of the conversations that I have had is, do I stay and take care of my sick mom? Right. Sure. Who I, who may be here a couple more years or do I move so that my kid can go to a school that where they, you know, because my clients are the ones that have to spend a week in the mental hospital because they're, you know, they, you know smart kid but they get heckled so much at school. They can't use the bathroom that they're supposed to, you know, they're singled out and that, you know, and so you're putting these people, citizens of Oklahoma, right. With the spirit of God in them to make these impossible choices between do I stay with my family that I love or do I go take care of my kid? Go to a place where I can be whole. Right. Well, and Chris, so to your point with your, your, your kids, I mean, are they going to want to start families here? Um, you know, as the state showing that it's, it's welcome to, you know, to, I mean, cause you know, you start a family here again, you want to be able to take care of your kids, you know, uh, whatever those kids, you know, look like, you know, whatever they are. 
Yeah. And, you know, can, do, do you have confidence that you're going to be able to do that? And, um, and, and, you know, and I was, I was looking a little bit at what the ACLU is posting, um, you know, cause they, they track all of, uh, a lot of the legislation that's, that's out there and, um, across the United States. And, and right now Oklahoma has the most anti LGBTQ bills. Without a doubt. You know, I mean, so, so right now we're, we, we are, Oklahoma is showing itself to be the most unwelcome state for LGBTQ individuals in the country. And, and and I, and I have news, I have news for the state too, which is that's not only like, so, um, uh, my children and all of their friends, whether they identify as one of those letters in that anagram or not want to be at a place that is affirming. They want to live in a place that's affirming and they are seeing the handwriting on the wall. Um, and that's a large group of friends that they have, none of whom are super excited about making their permanent home in Oklahoma. No, my, my, and my wife and I, we are working professionals and, um, uh, we, we, we like to think that we do good work and, um, and, and that, that benefits the state. And, and as you know, the, these are conversations that we do have on a regular basis or, right. you know, at, at a certain point is, is enough enough. And we need to, to, to take our, our, our talents elsewhere. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and I, I, I know that if we're having this conversation, I know that many other people are. And, um, that'll be just a, such a significant loss in my opinion for this state. So I want to kind of leave us in, <laughs> well, <laughs> it is there's, my pr- job to be the professional hope person. <laughs> right. So, right. So Josh, you want to, I just want to put a shout out to, if you are this far in the conversation and you do want to track the legislation nationwide or locally, there's an Aaron Reed, uh, on Twitter social media who tracks all of this, who I've become friends with. It took me a long time to earn their trust, Mm -hmm. but they are absolutely fabulous. And if you want to see a a human uh, serve their community in a brilliant way, in a way that allows us lay people and, uh, you know, allies to learn, um, check out Aaron Reed on, on, on the Twitters. Yeah. And there's lots of other, I mean, you can certainly go, um, uh, here in the state to Freedom Oklahoma. Yeah, or they do to, great work too. Uh, I love Freedom. Mm-hmm. Or to uh, lots of other organizations here locally, including the ACLU local chapter um, and, to track that legislation. And Lambda it's, Legal too. Like they, sure. Lambda Legal is involved in a couple of cases where my plaintiffs are involved, our former clients are, are part of uh, litigation. So they do amazing work. So I will, I will say, as we give all of those resources that, Tracking the legislation in the state of Oklahoma is not exactly a recipe for hope. Um, And so what I'm hoping we can do uh, here in this last little segment here is give folks some sense of um, some positive outcome um, in in a, a sea of pretty negative, at least emotionally speaking, uh, at this point, negative kinds of outcomes that seem to be on the horizon. Um, so I'm curious from either one of you, uh, what, uh, small, uh, candle lights do you see out there? I, I, I don't have hope, but I have faith is how I say it. I don't have hope that they're going to do the right thing, but I have faith in God and humans to eventually make it right. Um, and so that's the long game that I play. Um, 
you know, they're, I'll drive three hours away to a hearing. I'll lose it. I have to console a distressed client. And then I have those three hours back. And that's where you really like struggle. At least mm-hmm. I do. Um, and I've had to figure out who I can call to build me up and what I, what prayer or meditation I can do to refocus. Um, because there is, there is reason to have faith. You know, we, we, we have the community in place here to support these people. And we have some lessons to learn, I think, in terms of how we combat this. You know, we are definitely still waiting for the white middle class to step up on some of these, on, on, on these issues to take the lead. But you can find a way to have faith. And the key part of faith is action, right? I'm, I'm asking the pastor. I mean, <laughs> like, you know, faith without works is dead, right? Sure. Um, you'll feel better if you do something. Yeah. And I'm not saying you're going to solve the problem. I right. can't solve the problem. Right. Nobody in this room can. Right. But if you do one thing, yeah, it, it leads to another. It is a shift in the mentality, right? Of, right. of trying to resolve yourself, for instance, from stopping all horrible legislation to help provide right. networks and safety structures and uh, places of refuge uh, on the other side of that. So, mm-hmm. Aiden? So for me, the the little candles, um, I, I, I probably have kind of two, two, two ways that I see little candles. The first are um, the opportunity to interact with in individuals and, and share stories and, and see that moment where there's this kind of, oh, wow, that's not like what I thought it was at all. And, um, uh, and at, at least for me, I'm, I'm blessed in my life to be able to have that opportunity to, you know, to have, to share some of those stories and, um, have some of those exchanges with, with folks and, um, and, you know, seeing, you know, s- seeing those, um, interactions, um, gives me hope because I mean, there, there's some times where, where when I interact with, with just, you know, the, the, the quintessential cowboy Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, and he says something that, um, surprises me, you know, I, I, um, I'm moved by that. And, um, I, uh, you know, so I see that, you know, where I work, um, and then just, you know, also out in the community. The other thing that gives me hope as well is that um, I know that deep in in my bones, regardless of what our legislature does, that Oklahomans are are people who are um, are caring people and kind people and good people, and that while um, that and I and I, I you know that that may not necessarily apply to every Oklahoman. But um, I think in, in majority that that is the case. And, and how I know that is I see the ways that we take care of each other um, philanthropically through, you know, some of the nonprofit organizations in Tulsa um, and in our surrounding communities. Um, I see the way that our churches take care of us. And um, I see and, and have seen from, um, you know, a, a much younger age than what I am now, where I, I had to figure out, you know, what my process was and had um, angels 
helping me along the way, finding finding resources and knowing where I needed to go and what to do, and um, to the way that I see that as as a community we continue to respond to you know whether it's the Dobbs decision and you know or or you know whatever it is um what you know and 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 we do we we take care of each other and um and so i i know that while it it may mean that my life might get a little harder and you know it um may may be a little more confusing and and some of the the resources that i have been privileged to to have access to for a while might dry up um, I, I, I have faith and, and, and I, and I have hope too, that there's going to be something out there that, um, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to find a way and we'll be creative and, and figure it out and, uh, we'll take care of each other. Well, I want to thank you both uh, for being here. And I want to, um, to say that if you are a person listening to this podcast and you're wanting to figure out again, how to help, what to do. Um, again, look at that resource list that will be uh, attached to the description uh, of this episode. And also know that it is not too late um, for you to write your legislator, for you to um, even do something like speaking to your family members. Um, one of the things that Aiden was talking about really made me think that uh, the importance of keeping relationship where it is safe to keep relationship, where it is possible for you to do so. That's the huge caveat, where it is safe for you to do that. Um, trying to maintain those kinds of relationships and be a part of a different story being told um, it can be the most game-changing thing that, that is out there. And, and the times that I've seen transformation uh, from in unexpected places have come from people being... Um, uh, courageous enough is the reality uh, to tell their their own story uh, and and to do so at a place that again is not um, uh, a risk is not uh, going to be potentially harmful to them uh, but but may have some uh, some other needs as far as your courage goes to to have that conversation uh, that it's important to to do that and that can occur for anyone, including those of us who, who are really working to be allies in the situation, to share our story as well with our families, with our friends, to when we hear misinformation, to, to speak out against that and to try to offer you know, some different narratives. So I'm hopeful that you will. Um, there'll be a, also a link in the, um, in the description that will show you how to find your legislature, legislator and um, writing them a, a handwritten letter is the most effective way uh, to get your voice heard. Writing the governor, uh, you can do as well. Uh, it's it may not change a thing, and really at this point, uh, the the motivation ought to be you sharing your story. It ought to be you doing your part because that's all that we can do. Any of us in the in the end scheme is to do the thing that we can do, do what we can, where we are with what we have. Mm-hmm. Josh and Aiden, thanks again. Thank um, you, Chris. Thank you, Appreciate Chris. your time. Yeah, thank you. Intersections is recorded throughout the city of Tulsa, an estate which was once home to the Apache, Arapaho, Caddo, Comanche, Kiowa, Osage, and Wichita tribes. Tulsa now sits on the boundaries of the Muscogee, Cherokee, and Osage nations. 
Thank you for joining us for Intersections, a production of the Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry. Intersections is produced and edited by Ramp 9 Productions and can be found anywhere you get your podcasts.